Hello and welcome to the EOISS podcast, a conversation on foreign policy. My name is Florence Gaub. I'm the host of the show and the deputy director of the EOISS. And with me today, two distinguished guests, Jean-Pierre van Aubel, who is the current penholder of the Strategic Compass. If you don't know what that is, stay tuned because you'll find out after a long career in the Dutch Ministry of Defense and many other good places. And our own Daniel Fjord, the security and defense editor at the UISS, who's also had a very long and distinguished career. So let's dive straight into this. Jean-Pierre, what is the strategic compass everybody's talking about? Thanks very much, Florence, first for having me here and for asking that very pertinent question. The strategic compass is something that the 27 member states of the EU have been decided upon since last summer, so July last year to develop as a follow-up to the EU global strategy that was developed in 2016. The strategic compass is supposed to focus on the area of security and defense. So it has, in that sense, a more narrow focus than the global strategy. And the idea very much is to set out the goals and objectives for the next five years in the area of security and defense. Obviously, since the global strategy in 2016, member states have been working on a whole lot of defense initiatives to further strengthen the role of the European Union in the area of security and defense. But now it's perhaps time to move to the next level. The main reason for moving to the next level is obviously all the threats and challenges that the European Union is, is facing today, be it in the South, be it in the East, and even beyond that. And all these threats and challenges demand also a European answer. And that is why member states have decided to develop this strategic compass, where we're now working on very hard, and we should be concluded and agreed by the same member states in March next year. Okay, so we know what a compass is. It's a device to give you a sense of direction. We kind of know what strategy is. How is the strategic compass strategic? Well, as I said, I think it, it needs to provide the European Union and its member states with a clear answer to how to deal with these threats and challenges. And obviously, by doing that, you also need to look at what are the EU interests and what are the EU values that we want to defend. And I think it's very important that we do that together at 27. And that is what should make it strategic. So it's not simply a to-do list. It should also, this document, the strategic compass, should also help bringing Europeans and European member states closer together when we speak about security and defense. Daniel, do you have two cents on that? What makes it strategic? I largely agree, actually, with what Jean-Pierre said, and especially on this key point about providing a bit more clarity and direction, because I think, as Jean-Pierre also said, we were slowly getting there after 2016 with the global strategy of getting a better idea of what indeed our interests and values were and how to secure them. So the compass, in a way, I always see it as the kind of missing piece of the jigsaw puzzle, at least for now. But for me, it's also not just about giving greater direction or clarity about what we want to achieve. And when I think of the word strategy in particular, I also think about threats, which Jean-Pierre has already mentioned very well. And I think the threat analysis actually that was the beginning part of this process that took a 360-degree approach to the threats that Europe was facing. That in itself was a very novel exercise and also very strategic in its own right. But I also think that strategy is about choices, right? What type of choices do you make? And that's really core here because when we speak about the strategic compass, at least to my mind, and maybe we'll get into this a bit later, but it starts to evoke also questions about threat perceptions, uh, strategic cultures. And we know that member states are not exactly on the same page 
But we, at least with the compass, we have also a process that not, is not only about to deliver greater clarity in security and defense, but is also kind of nudging member states a bit in this direction as well to find a bit of commonality between their own uh, perceptions as well. So I think it is strategic, but uh, we still have a bit uh, of a way to go in the process. Is it fair to say that the strategic compass will produce a strategy? Or is the strategic compass a strategy? Yes and no, if you want. Typical bureaucratic answer. But I'll explain that a little bit. Yes, I do agree with Daniel that it should help further defining where the EU interests are and what the EU answers are to certain threats and challenges and how to best deal that. And by the way, implied in that answer is that, of course, it might be very well possible that the EU on its own need to answer to those threats and challenges. But it's equally very well possible, and we should also encourage that, that we should also do this with partners. So it's not always the EU on its own, huh? but where necessary, the EU should be able to handle on its own. Where possible, it should do this also with partners. And obviously, you can think about other big international organizations like NATO and the UN, but also with the individual partner countries. I think that is very, very important. But to answer to the question, strategy, yes or no, it should have the strategic element of providing direction. I think that is very important. It should have this element of further developing what we call, and Daniel mentioned it, a strategic culture, precisely by this threat analysis that we have been developing at the end of last year. I do think that we get a better understanding, common understanding of what's going on in the world and how we should deal with that. At the same time, the strategic compass should not be in a strategy in a sense that it should stay at the highest political level. For giving direction, it should also be concrete. It should set clear goals in all these domains where we need to act. And perhaps we'll talk about that later. However, it is very important for me, at least, that it's not only a strategy like the global strategy, which gives the overall picture. It should have a sort of action plan in it. So in that sense, it's perhaps a bit of a mix of documents that we usually know. For me, it's on the one hand, providing direction. On the other hand, also giving clear guidance on what EU member states and EU institutions together need to do in the next five years. Just to echo maybe also the point that the compass is part of a, a longer journey, right, that began with the global strategy. Whatever year you take from the global strategy, you see the EU becoming a bit clearer every time it does a new initiative or new step. And the compass is very much part of that process. But one of the main questions I had for Jean-Pierre, if I can, is to maybe ask him a bit about how are the processes between the strategic compass and the EU global strategy different? And how might he see that working out in his day-to-day -day work on the compass? I say this, of course, because we know that the global strategy was in a way a kind of top-down driven document by the HRVP at the time. And the compass, as you rightfully said, Jean-Pierre, is a kind of more bottom-up approach where the member states are taking on a bit more responsibility and involvement in this, even though, of course, the EAS and yourself included are the penholders. So how do those processes sit in your mind, actually? Yeah, I know. I fully agree with you, Daniel, that the process of the strategic compass is much more bottom-up. And even more than in the global strategy of 2016, member states are now in the driving seat. I'm really convinced also that if we want to set these goals, because setting goals is one thing, but implementing the goals is another thing. And for that implementation, we need the member states. It is not the European institutions, the EAS or the Commission or, or others who are going to implement these goals. It's the member states. So it is very important that from the outset, you have the buy-in of all the 27 member states. Otherwise, we'll end up with a beautiful 
document that will not be implemented. That is also, I think, with that reasoning in mind that we have drawn a process that is indeed a little bit different than uh, from the EU Global Strategy in 2016. And what we have done now is step by step, we've always asked member states about their opinions. We did that in the threat analysis. The threat analysis that you mentioned, Daniel, is based on input by almost all member states, intelligence services. So this is not something that is made by the European Union, by the institutions. It has been compiled by the institutions. The information comes from the member states. And I think it's been a very, very important step that for the very first time, the European Union has done this threat analysis. And actually, I think it's a very good document. And it describes very well the situation in the world and everything that we as Europeans are facing. And that is quite a lot. We've also been doing that in the step that followed on that threat analysis, which was the outline of the compass, which we've presented in February to member states. Again, we've asked member states, how do you see this compass work? And based on their input, we have drafted the, so to say, the skeleton of the compass. Now, since February, we are in what we call a strategic dialogue phase amongst member states. And actually, I'm really glad how that is going, because this actually means this strategic dialogue that member states among themselves, obviously with the help of us institutions, And with a very strong involvement, I have to say, also of think tankers, and I think that's very important. And you know that yourself, Daniel. Member states are talking to each other and they're organizing workshops on all different elements of the compass related to the four pillars of the strategic compass, be it crisis management, resilience, capabilities, and partnerships. And I think if I count it well now, between February and July, we're very close to having about 50 seminars, 5-0. I think it's been a long, long, long time ago, if at all, that we had 50 seminars in such a short time span on European security and defense. So I think that is really, really very positive. And there is not a single member state that is not involved in these seminars. Of course, they all have different settings and organized by different member states, but all of them are on board. And I think that that is very important. Secondly, if I count it well again, I think by now we have received almost 20 non-papers from member states, again, on topics related to these four baskets. And these non-papers are not just written by one or two member states. No, they often are written by a group of 10, 15 member states. And that in itself shows that member states amongst themselves are already discussing, talking, and sometimes even negotiating, because if you write such a paper, you need to agree amongst that group. So I see that member states now are very, very, very active when it comes to the topics of the strategic compass. And I think that is already different from how we did it with the global strategy. Now, the last step, so this strategic dialogue will last till the summer, perhaps a little bit over the summer. And then, obviously, the HRVP needs to present his first draft of the strategic compass in November. And this is what member states have asked. So member states have explicitly said, we want to be in the driving seat. And that's what you see now during this strategic dialogue phase. Member states have also said, but still, HRVP, Mr. Borrell, we would like you to present us a first draft of the document because you can bring everything together and you can then present us a consolidated version. And that is what I'm on a daily basis working on. So that is a little bit different also from the global strategy, how we did it. And then the final point that is different is that member states have explicitly agreed that they need to agree on the strategic compass. 
And the EU Global Strategy of 2016 has never been agreed. It's not been negotiated amongst member states. And that's also because member states have in mind that, again, this implementation is important, so we need to have everybody on board. For everybody to be on board, we need to have the approval of all 27, and thus it means that we need to negotiate it. So negotiations are foreseen between November and March. The European Council in February has set an end date of March 2022, and that is when the document needs to be agreed. Listening to you, I couldn't help, it's not a coincidence, but notice that there are similarities between foresight and strategy. Daniel, I will talk about a little bit of that next time. But foresight also cannot be done. You cannot just do it by yourself in your room. And when I wrote the SBAS report and I was the pen holder for that, I could have written a report just by myself, but then it's not acceptable to the people who actually have to implement it. And I think that's one of the three adjectives for strategy. It should be acceptable. It should be suitable. It should be feasible. So if it's not acceptable, then you have already lost half the bargain in a way. So we've understood that it's a five-year horizon. So it is a strategy in a way. It has very concrete ideas. So it all sounds very, I'm going to say bureaucratic for want of a better word. But when you look in the dictionary strategies, the art and science of yeah, calibrating ends, ways and means, what do you find particularly, I'm not going to say artsy, but innovative, creative about this process? What did you find surprising so far? One of the things that I found surprising was what I actually just said, the enormous involvement of member states and the seriousness with which member states are treating this subject. And I think that really shows that there is a broad understanding that as a European Union, we need to step up our efforts when it comes to security and defense. And that's really something that I sense. It's a sense also of we need to come closer to each other. Again, as Daniel also said, there are differences amongst member states and there will be differences amongst member states that has to do with history, that has to do with geography. I think that is something that we will always face. That is the composition of the European Union. That's what makes us unique, but also important at the same time. So the fact of bringing that together, I think, and, and the sense of urgency is something that is very good. Innovative? Well, I think it is rather innovative that we have this combination of top-down and bottom-up. And over the last years, I think we've seen also this trend of member states saying, yeah, but if we want this to work, certainly in the area of security and defense, we need to have everybody on board. And that is not only at the political level, that is also at the level of implementation. You can come up with great plans in the area of defense, but if the defense planners cannot work with it, And if it's not compatible with other processes, then it will simply not work. So I think we need to even go beyond the, the level of politicians, and that's what we're doing, and ask also the people in the field, ask the people in ministries, ask the military planners, those who are dealing on a daily basis with capability development, but also those who are working on cyber defense and cyber security, to have their opinions on what is indeed, as you say, France, or what is feasible. And what is possible? And how could it work in practice? And I think that it's, it's perhaps not shocking. <laughs> it's not shockingly innovative. But still, it's a different way of working, I think, than, than as we have done it until now. Could I maybe add something there, Florence, as well? Because I think picking up on your point about art and science, if I can for one second maybe step out of the EU institutional jungle. Jean-Pierre mentioned that there have been, what, now up to 50 workshops. And EYSS have been directly involved in at least about seven of them and another five, which kind of connected as well to this process. And purely from an anthropological point of view, 
what has been really striking is exactly what Jean-Pierre said, that actually the member states themselves have approached this exercise in a very different way. Jean-Pierre, and I'm sure you, Florence, will also know this, but every council meeting or, or working group meeting is normally organized on the basis of notes from capital, right? You turn up, you read your notes, and then you go for lunch once your point's been made. And that, that actually leads to a very static debate. What's really struck me in this process is how forthcoming the member states have been, firstly, in what threats they see to be really pertinent for themselves. But secondly, what Jean-Pierre said, they're not doing it in isolation. This is not just a member states putting their own interests on the table and saying, there we go. This is a little bit about building coalitions around certain ideas. And again, from an anthropological point of view, uh, or from a political science point of view, this is really interesting. And I'm sure there will be students or or professors out there who one day will probably study this process for this reason. Maybe one quick follow-up question for Jean-Pierre again. We talked about the innovation or the creativity of the process. Maybe this is a bit of an unfair question for you, given that we haven't yet finished the first cycle or the first process. But five years from now, you know, drafting maybe a revised version or an updated version of the campus, would you do anything different in those five years? Or would you stick with pretty much the same methodology? given that this is new for everyone, actually, everyone involved. Absolutely true, Daniel. It is new and we're discovering day by day and we're learning by doing. So I think definitely in a year time, we should look back and say, okay, what could we have done differently? But provided that in five years, we're going indeed to do an update, I would say that we need a less heavy process than we have now, of course. But still with that involvement of member states, and precisely as you say, that the cooperation amongst member states, either at 27 or in smaller groups, I think that is something that we need to keep at all times because that's very valuable. And I see that also coming back when we then have these discussions in more formats, such as the political and security committee, because then you can already see that there is a sort of common understanding amongst groups of member states. And it really helps, I think, pushing things forward. A bit too soon, perhaps, to say uh, what we shouldn't do anymore, but I do agree with you that, that in a year time, we, need, we should look back. But, but again, I think that if we go for an update, and I do believe that in five years' time, if the world, world doesn't change dramatically before, of course, but then in five years' time, we need to do an update, then we, need a, we could do with a lighter process, I think, because it is very time-consuming and very heavy now, but it's what's necessary now. You mentioned something interesting. You said, unless times change or things change, because I think strategies are being devised, particularly when things are changing and we need a new sense of direction or new guidance on new issues and so forth. So whenever we update a strategy or we write a new one, we know that something is changing. But that brings me to other strategic issues, strategic autonomy, strategic sovereignty, strategic culture mentioned earlier by Daniel. Um, this is a question actually for both of you. I think strategic culture is less being talked about at the moment, but extremely important. Then, of course, talk of the town is strategic autonomy or sovereignty, no matter how you want to call it. How does the strategic compass link to strategic culture and strategic autonomy and sovereignty, if at all? No, it certainly does, I think. And I think that was already a bit in the answers that I gave before in the discussion we just had. I think that as such, the strategic compass and this whole process contributes to a strategic culture. I think for both, actually, strategic culture and strategic autonomy, perhaps we should stop talking about it and just do it. And that is already happening, I think, with a strategic culture by developing this threat analysis, by discussing about this threat analysis, by developing 
an answer to the threats and challenges by having all these workshops and member states sitting together and writing on papers about important topics. That is how you develop a strategic culture, I think. So you can talk a lot about it, but I have the feeling that this is already ongoing. And with the strategic compass, hopefully we will give it a further push and in the right direction. And the same actually applies to strategic autonomy. You can have a whole lot of philosophical debates about strategic autonomy or sovereignty. I actually prefer autonomy. I think sovereignty is a much more sensitive word, also for certain national constitutions. So I think strategic autonomy is the right term. And actually, if you look at the strategic compass, I said there are are four pillars. The first three pillars are actually focusing on increasing our strategic autonomy. It means that in the first pillar, it means that the European Union and its member states need to become a stronger actor in crisis management. So this means our missions and operations abroad. We're currently having missions and operations in Africa. We're having mission operations on the Balkans and also on the eastern side of Europe. And I think they're doing very important work. But I also think that everybody agrees that we could do better with those missions and operations. So we need to have more robust and more flexible mandates. We need to have more robust and flexible operations and missions to act. And perhaps we also need to have more flexibility in how we come to these missions and operations. So we need to become a stronger crisis management actor. That is the first pillar, actually. And yes, that also means that we need to be able to do these things on our own. Second pillar, and this is what the threat analysis has shown clearly, and here is actually where I think you have the biggest difference if you look back to 2016 and the global strategy. We have many examples that we need to better protect ourselves against threats from outside, and this is what we call resilience. Now, if you look at the 2016 global strategy and you use the word version, I think you can find it on the internet, and you type resilience, you will see that most of the references to resilience in 2016 were to the resilience of third countries, so outside the European Union. That has changed over the last five years because we have seen that many of these threats actually apply to ourselves. Think about hybrid threats. Think about cyber attacks. And we have member states that were under a cyber attack. Think about disinformation. And the current COVID crisis has actually made those threats even more visible. So where in 2016, we were very much focused on helping others building their resilience against threats, we're now also focusing on ourselves. And it doesn't mean that we forget about our partners. On the contrary, we need to also continue that work. But it's also important that we protect ourselves. So if you want to be a better actor in crisis management, if you want to better protect yourself, then you move to the third pillar. And it means that you need to have the right capabilities, both civilian and military. And here, if we're honest with ourselves, we're still facing critical capability gaps to do these missions and operations on our own, to protect ourselves where necessary. Examples here, for example, are that we still lack strategic airlift. Strategic airlifts are airplanes and helicopters that help bring soldiers from Europe to a mission area or that transport soldiers and, of course, their assets within the mission area. It's a very important capability that we're lacking in the European Union still, something that we're working on already for a long, long time. But if we really want to increase that capability of being a real good crisis management actor, then we need to overcome these critical capability gaps. It also means that we need to live up with all the developments that are happening in the area of new technologies. 
we see a rise of big powers, and notably China. And I think over the last days, there's been a lot of talk about China also at the recent NATO summit two days ago here in Brussels. If Europeans want to live up to those developments, we also need to invest ourselves in these technologies. And we need to make sure that we are on the technological edge so that we keep our own, and here you can use the word sovereignty, I think, that we can protect our own use of technologies. And very much linked to that, obviously, is also a very vital European defense industry. I think that is very important. Now, these are the first three baskets of the strategic compass which in my view describe best what strategic autonomy is. It's about increasing your ability to act and to protect. I think that's very important. And then we come to the fourth, as I said before, in many situations, we're not going to do this on our own. We need to cooperate with others. I mentioned NATO, I mentioned the UN. Think about individual countries such as the United States, and I'm very glad about the declaration that was given out yesterday by President Biden and the European Union on a closer EU-US cooperation, including a dialogue on security and defense. I think that is very, very important. But also with countries like Canada and Norway, and why not also with the United Kingdom, I think still very, very important. But just to mention that this is not for nothing that we have chosen this structure in the compass, because the first three baskets really describe what strategic autonomy is, And that goes hand in hand with the fourth basket, which is partnerships. So what I also hope is that the strategic compass brings an end to a discussion that puts strategic autonomy versus cooperation with partners or against or diminishing the transatlantic link or cooperation with NATO, because I'm really convinced that these two go hand in hand and that they actually strengthen each other. Because if the European Union in these three first pillars strengthens itself, it becomes a more serious partner and it will automatically reinforce the cooperation with NATO, with the UN, with the US, and so on and so on. Um, Daniel, do you want to come in here? Jean-Pierre's actually covered a lot of ground and I share um, a lot of his views. I would just maybe not focus so much on strategic culture per se, because I think that kind of works hand in hand with the idea of more strategic autonomy and it's a bit more long term. But precisely what Jean-Pierre said about a greater realization, I think that member states are not necessarily getting caught or hung up on the language and are more focusing on the action side of things. And if we take this in a kind of broader political perspective, at least in recent history, what was really interesting was that right before the strategic compass process, or at least during the period of the threat analysis phase, we had quite a famous public dialogue, if I want to put it this way, between the head of state in France and a minister in Germany, precisely debating these in the open press, this this question of what strategic autonomy should mean. And I said at the time, I may have come in for some criticism for it, but I said at the time that this was quite a helpful dialogue because it kind of lanced the boil that was there already on the surface, given the four years of the Trump administration. And I think the strategic compass is a process which can help member states work out what they mean by strategic autonomy a bit more clearly. Also, another point that Jean-Pierre mentioned, and I think this has been probably the most startling observation in the last few days. Maybe not so unexpected, but it's still quite interesting, I think, is precisely on this US-EU dimension. The very fact that the US president says that he's looking at the EU as a credible partner when it comes to defense, also giving the message that actually the US expects more from the EU on defense as well, that kind of idea has always been there in the past, but it's never been so clearly articulated. Now, what drives that? Well, I think partly the answer can be found what happened at the NATO summit. 
where the main discussion, at least it seemed to me, despite all of the new initiatives that were created, was this question of China, right? And it's very clear that the US put there on the table that China for them is the number one issue. You need to follow us on this or you know, come to a kind of comfortable accommodation with this request. And the language for the US-EU side was very different, I found. But it also means that the pressure is on for the EU side as well, because this was a kind of, it felt like once in a lifetime invitation that we in the US are getting very serious about our strategy and in different ways, not necessarily thinking about Europe anymore as the as the primary theater for strategy. And you guys are going to have to step up. And so I found this quite an interesting messaging, I would say, political messaging. Two other points as well, again, drawing on history, June is quite an important month when it comes to security and defense, actually. I was doing a little bit of research, archival research, if I could put it this way, And I found that uh, June this year is the 18th year anniversary of when we agreed to launch Operation Artemis in the DRC in Congo, right? So it's almost 20 years. It seems like a whole lifetime ago. But that was indeed the first autonomous EU mission that was deployed. It was also the first one that was deployed to Africa as well, first military operation. It also gives us some indication that autonomy is not a very, very new phenomenon. It is something that's been there at the heart of EU defense. There's a second anniversary, though, and this is where the cautionary tale comes in. It's also the 17th year anniversary of when the concept was agreed for the EU battle groups. And we know the history of the battle groups, right? They've never been deployed. They seem to be a source of frustration, a source of disappointment. Critics of the EU always use it as the beating stick. So it's there in the history as well. But I agree with Jean-Pierre that the compass gives us a reason or a means to articulate this a bit more clearly, especially on the strategic communication side of things. Communicating to partners what we want to do, what we don't want to do is really important as well. Thanks. If I may just briefly coming back to strategic autonomy, since it is such an interesting topic, of course, and just to underline what Daniel said, I think that that is very important. There's a lot of sense that sometimes strategic autonomy would be a concept that would be difficult to accept from the American side. I think actually that that it's not that difficult to accept from the American side. And actually, in a way, like Daniel said, the Americans are even promoting it because they want to a certain extent, of course, but they want the Europeans to take more responsibility, notably also in their neighborhood. They want the Europeans to invest more. They want the Europeans to spend more on research and technology. And I think that the biggest mistake that we could make today is to think that all this was only under the Trump administration. It is not the case. It has never been the case. This message is already dating back from the time of President Clinton, so before Obama. And I think indeed yesterday we've seen, or the day before yesterday, we've seen the clear message again, also from this administration. And obviously we're very, very glad that we have again a president with whom we can cooperate. And that I think we've seen that NATO is back on track now that EU-US cooperation is is reinforcing and all that is very positive. But as Europeans, let's not forget that we have an own responsibility as well and that we need to live up to that. That is also what the Americans ask for us and will continue to ask. So looking forward, the future of the Compass, what are the next steps up to March 2022 when it will be presented and what's going to happen after March 2022? Yeah, so as I said, we're continuing this strategic dialogue phase now till half July, I think, and and perhaps even a bit in in September with the member states, amongst member states, 
We're having discussions on all those four pillars of the strategic compass. And then in November, we will present a first draft. Uh, the HRVP will present the first draft. Obviously, between September and November, there will be very close contacts with member states to make sure that they continue to feel on board and that the document that the HRVP puts on the table in November doesn't come as a complete surprise to member states because that's what we usually don't like on the EU side, surprises. So I think it's very important to keep member states also involved in that process. But it's the HRVP that will table in November, half November, I think it will be the first draft. And then, as I said, member states will negotiate it. And that will happen at various levels, I think. And I can even imagine that at a certain point, ministers will be involved in that because it is very closely followed also at the highest political level, even by heads of states and government. And I think rightly so. Member states would adopt the document in March next year. And then we have a strategic compass. And then indeed your question, Florence, what's next? And I think this depends very much on how we write the strategic compass. And that is what I said in the beginning, where it should be different from any usual strategy because we need to have these clear goals and objectives and timelines. And then I think also that member states need to agree on how to follow up. I could imagine, obviously, we don't want to end up with two heavy bureaucratic processes where we're only checking documents. We need to check the real progress. But if we set these clear goals and guidelines and timelines, then we can come back to each other and member states can come back to each other and say at a certain point in time, after a year, for example, where do we stand? What is the progress that we have made? If we look at objective one, has it been fulfilled? Objective two, has it been fulfilled? And if not, what's the reason that it hasn't been fulfilled and what could we do? Again, we haven't clearly defined that process. I think that is, again, very much in the hands of the member states. But personally, I hope that it doesn't end in March next year when we have a compass and then we'll see each other in five years. Frankly speaking, when I listen to all the member states, I also don't think that that is what they have in mind. They also want to have an actionable document that we could follow up and that we could implement and that we could check on a regular basis on where we stand. Well, you know, Churchill's saying it's good to have a strategy, but occasionally one should have a look at it and perhaps update it. So this will never be the end of the story because I always find it amusing when people make fun of an outdated strategy a strategy is never supposed to last an entire lifetime that would be, frankly, stupid because it is designed to adapt to the environment it's in. That concludes the list of my questions I have to you. Jean-Pierre, I wish you all the best for the rest of the process. I hope it's not too onerous. Thank you for being with us today. Also, thank you, Daniel. Daniel will also be with me in the, our next episode. So do tune in again and thanks for listening.